Hello, and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, I'm delighted to have as my guest, Ian Marsh. Ian is an expert in listening, and God knows most of you need this. So today, we're going to explore what listening is, what it isn't, some tips and stories along the way. Ian, would you mind giving us a quick 60 to 90 second summary of your journey to get to where you are, please? Yeah, thanks, Marcus. And first of all, thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Pleasure. I uh, I practiced law for many years, and you listeners might not think lawyers are perhaps the best listeners in the world, but there you go. I found myself litigating some huge family conflicts, usually between generations or between siblings or cousins. And you know, from a lawyer's perspective, it was terrific. I met interesting people, did challenging work, got well paid for it. But from the client's perspective, I was left wondering, you know, is this really achieving a huge amount? So I, uh, I trained as a mediator, and when an opportunity came along, I gave up the practice of law to start trying to mediate the sorts of things I'd been uh, litigating up to that point. And when I found myself doing that full time, it struck me fairly early on that you know, all this conflict was really about breakdown of trust and communication, which are you know, aspects of the same thing. And I started getting fascinated by why these people who were economically successful, well-educated, well-intentioned, loved one another, and even they couldn't talk about the things that mattered most to them. And if they couldn't, what help, hope was there for the rest of us? So I, I got into studying that, which over time led me to write the book and spend more and more of my time focusing on helping people to have have tough conversations or indeed have have any conversation because any conversation can get tough <laughs> in no time at all, really. So that's about it. Observing history, we can see that you can go from peace to war in the blink of an eye. And uh, at a micro level, I think there is a fundamental rule in life, which is just assume everyone is batshit crazy. Is that a fair starting point? I actually make a very different assumption. Okay, Uh, let's hear yours. (laughs) um, I have taught myself to go into this assuming that everybody else is doing the best they can with the resources they've got at that point in time. We all want to be happy. Nobody wants to suffer. We're trying to get there, and some days we're better than others. I had a Uh, Matrix client who would disagree with you. Tell me more. (laughs) Well, she was one of the top dominatrices in London, New York, and Cardiff, and they paid her top dollar for uh, making them suffer. Um, mm-hmm. she, she well, fabulous business in female fantasy fulfillment coaching and naked platters. She also did another one, which was the naked hunk. So uh, bored housewives of the rich and famous would invite these Adonis-like creatures over to feed them peeled grapes and do whatever. <laughs> well, I, I, I think what it underlines is that one person's suffering is another person's pleasure. <laughs> and if you get down to the science of it, you know, which of the chemicals are you triggering the release of in your body? And how have you been conditioned to respond to those? Yeah, as a kid, I was terrified of fairground rides, but I was always convinced, even from I don't know, early teens, that the thing I interpreted as fear, some of my friends interpreted as excitement. Um, yeah, some of that's cultural, some of it's individual, some of it depends, yeah, whether you have high levels of the neurotransmitters in your system or, or low levels, you know? Okay, well, let, let's get uh, into the meat and grist. So what are the four most common questions you get asked as an expert in listening about why listening is important, how to improve your listening capability? The really interesting thing about listening is that people don't ask questions about it because the logic goes something like this. I can hear, therefore I can listen. And if I try and come in at that point, they'll cut me off and say, in any way, listening is something for other people to do. Yeah. 
I, I do workshops and on difficult conversations and one of the most frequent comments from people, particularly those who would be classified by other people as, as alpha, whether male or female, is I have no difficulty getting my point across. <laughs> or more likely, I think you'll find that I have no difficulty getting my point across. <laughs> <laughs> to which, of course, the response is, how do you know that? Do you ever check with the people you're talking to whether they've understood what you said? And generally, people think that's the other guy's problem. It's about their broadcasters, not communicators. It's funny to me that when we talk about great communicators, we're usually talking about orators. You can't deny that Hitler had something about him when you look at those rallies, mm. staged hugely, of course they were, but he was having an impact on people, but he just assumed he was, and he, he, he got back in the motorcade and, and left. Was he a great communicator one-on-one? I don't know. I wasn't there. Maybe he was, but all, all the people who tend to get picked out seem to be, I suppose there are exceptions. You, know, you pick somebody like Bill Clinton, of whom people say, yeah, I went to this reception, he was there, we were together for seconds, and for that time, A, it felt like a long time, and B, he made me feel as if I was the only person in the room. That's the beginning of listening. It's all about connecting, because if we don't connect, the words are just lost in the wind. So to summarise two critical points that I think you've made, The first one is all of us want to be heard, feel felt, and be understood. And the second is that the meaning of communication is the one that's received, not the one that was intended or transmitted. Because if the meaning of what you intended is not received in the way you expected it to, you have miscommunicated. And I, I think so often in life, in families, in business, there is an awful lot of assumption and mind reading that goes on, which then creates confusion because there's ambiguity or there are mismatched expectations. And certainly in my world at work, mismatched expectations and ambiguity are the mothers of all FUBARs. If you want to create chaos and unintended consequence, don't double check to make sure what you intended to be understood has been understood in the way you intended it. So tell me this, what are the questions we should be asking about listening and effective communication that we don't? I think, I think my favourite would be a play on the old joke, how, how many people does it take to listen? I would say... At least two. Listening is, goes back to what you just said, listening is part of conversation, something we do together. It's a, it's a game for two or more players. It's all about the interaction and, as I say, the, the connection. And for me, that goes back to feeling safe and making each other feel safe. When we don't feel safe, when we feel threatened, we go into what most people would know as fight-flight mode. When we do that, lots of physiological changes happen. And one of them is, well, the key point, I guess, is that it stops being about us and it starts being about me and my survival. If you want people to hear what you say, you have to put them at their ease, make them feel safe and... There are lots of aspects to that from the space you have this conversation in to food, drink, all sorts of things. But also, if you're super stressed and you're in fight-flight mode, people pick that up pretty quickly. It sort of takes two smiley faces together before there's a real chance of good communication. And and I'd pick up one of the things you, you said from the the your key points, that it isn't just feeling heard, it's feeling felt. 
we have these emotions for a reason. They, they drive us to action and we're meant to read them. And when we lose that skill, it makes communication all the harder, which is one of the reasons, we'll probably come back to this, but it's one of the reasons doing stuff over technology like this, which we've all had to do a lot more of recently, is much harder than doing it, you know, standing toe-to-toe. might be safer for some people, but it's harder. I'm really curious about the state of mind that one needs to be in to be a really effective and empathic listener. Yeah, I'm really interested you, 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 you say state of mind there, because I've come to think of it over the time as more to do with our state of body. You know, whether we're calm or excited is all about, you know, the sympathetic nervous system, the parasympathetic nervous system. I don't want to get bogged down in science, but the things we need to do uh, to get that state of mind that you want is to have the body in a relaxed state, you know, lowers the heartbeat, the blood pressure, all of that, but it also turns on this social engagement system we, we have in our brains. You know, some people say more of the brain is devoted to that than to any other single purpose, to collaborating, being social, tending and befriending, whatever one of these terms you, you want to use. The, the problem with it is it gets tripped offline really easily. And the easiest ways of keeping ourselves in that state uh, to keep the the calming side of our body, you know, the brakes, if you will, applied in a in a gentle fashion, and that's that's some of that is stuff we can do long before we get to the difficult conversation. We can do it on a regular basis and make ourselves more calm people. You're still going to flip out occasionally. We all do, but perfection isn't the goal. You know, doing it better is the goal. Okay, so. In terms of calibrating how one is feeling, you often hear about having a gut feel, Mm -hmm. um, that instinct. I think one of the most important skills is to be able to understand your own state and to recognize whether you're feeling tense, whether you're feeling anxious, angry, frustrated, jealous, whatever. And so again, can you give some direction or advice in terms of the practice of understanding yourself first? Yeah. Well, let me ask you a question. How Do you ever stop to do that? Yes. It's difficult to remember, but if I'm going into an important meeting or I have to have an awkward and difficult conversation, I'll pay attention to my physiology and... If I can catch myself early enough, and therein uh, lies the, uh, the rub, then I'll moderate my breathing. But it does take awareness. And I'm not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, as my wife and kids will attest. I think awareness is the starting point, but awareness is a muscle like any other. You need to exercise it to get the muscle memory to keep doing it. I think it's it's a good thing to check your state when you're going into a situation you know is likely to change it. For a lot of people, just knowing their state would be a huge shift in their life because a lot of people don't know what their state is. They feel agitated, but they can't articulate what the agitation is. I'm guessing from what you say that you know where in your body you experience anger, mm-hmm. where you experience anxiety. And for most people, all this stuff is down the, the centre line. You know, we get worried a bit here, we get sad here, here in the forehead, the temple, sadness comes in the throat. You know, for me, anger's probably in the chest, anxiety's down in the belly. Um, leave aside the the sweaty stuff Um, (laughs) you know but I I mean one thing I encourage people to do is to is to check in when they're not going into those difficult situations it's like everything else start off doing it 
make it easier for yourself to do that. Learn what your emotions are. I mean, it's 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 great to talk about anxiety, but what yeah, what what is anxiety for you? Is is it absolute terror or is it butterflies in the tummy? I have all those things in my life at one time or another. But being aware of how intense your emotion is, as well as what the emotion is, is a good thing to do. And just stop for a few seconds every now and again when when you have a moment in the day. And, you know, what am I feeling? How intense is it? Where is it in my body? Is it actually asking me to do something? Because that's what, yeah, go back to the animal in. That's what it's for. It's there to send you a signal. Some of those signals don't work real well in the 21st century. But that's the dilemma. But I think the more you can do that, and actually naming the emotion to yourself, there's lots of studies out there that show that naming an emotion dampens it almost immediately. If you just say, oh, I'm, I'm scared or I'm angry, irritated, whatever, whatever it might be, you know, develop a vocabulary for it. Naming it can reduce it, which works in the conversation too. If you... I'm sure we'll come back to it, but if if part part of the conversation, part of your listening to somebody else is recognizing their emotion and acknowledging it, you may get it wrong, but you tend to get it wrong in, you know, if you suggest to somebody that and see you're very angry about this, you know, you're liable to get something like angry, I'm a thing, whatever. But the fact that you've tried is the biggest thing. You've tried to name it. And you're in the right direction, and you've acknowledged. So they feel heard, they feel felt to a degree. So just doing that little exercise, yeah, 30 seconds a minute, a few times a day, starts to become a habit, and you become much more aware of what's going on. What can we do when we're communicating with someone else who is not receptive to open them up to listening? So I'll give you a concrete example. My daughter is concerned because um, she knows that she's behind on her studies uh, due to lockdown. Now, she has been working throughout the summer, but she's genuinely concerned. And we were discussing the possibility of maybe speaking to the actual poet uh, on her A-level syllabus uh, for English. And Mm -hmm. we know that the poet's still alive, but her response when um, I inadvertently rescued by making an unwelcome and uninvited suggestion, so that's on me, was, well, she's probably busy, it's a stupid idea. Now, if you want to go, to, you know, if you want help to understand uh, something, go to the source in my book. I know that I'm guilty of rescuing, so, you know, hands up. Um, <laughs> you're, you're a parent, you're allowed. Exactly. Well, again, I should know better, but wherever it's personal, then uh, the level of attachment increases, so you tend to find yourself more frequently in the drama triangle. But my question is this, if you know that this is something that would be uh, of potential value, and there is no risk, I mean, the worst that could happen is this poet says no, and we're no further along or no worse off than we we are at the moment. How do you open someone up who's closed to listening? You've got a second complicating factor in your scenario other than being a parent, you've got to live with that one for, for life. But your daughter's an adolescent and she's in the process of having her brain rewired because that's what adolescence is about. So it's much harder. Adolescents take direction, as you will have noticed, less well than perhaps <laughs> other people. I yeah. think she's completely ignoring maybe what yeah. they're about. Yeah, well, you know, she's going from being a sponge where her job was to learn everything she could to try to be an independent person and part of that is walking away from the guru you know but I think in 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 general terms well question how did you suggest this to her we were on a walk with the dog last night and we were chatting and she spent half an hour telling me how unfair it all was and how um her teachers hadn't necessarily responded over the summer the way she wanted them to and how far behind she was and I said well what what if the um, the uh, poet herself was willing to help you is that something that you'd be willing to engage in and she said well that's a stupid idea she's probably dead so I looked her up on the internet 
And I said, no, she's not. She's very much alive. And she's now a poet laureate for Minnesota. She's uh, involved in the American Arts and Lits uh, Association. Would you like me to contact her? Oh, no, it's a stupid idea. Clearly, I, I messed up because the communication landed badly. Yeah. Or did you mess up because she's just so wound up that she's not in listening mode? So, but so I, I, either I, way, yeah, if, if the communication didn't land the way I wanted. That's my yeah. Thought. I mean, it, it's. I think part of it is maybe you, the tendency we all have is to move to the solution too soon. Yeah. And, yeah, she's unloading all this sense of unfairness and fear as what it leads to and all the rest of it. Maybe it would be better to stay with that and explore that further till till she's ready to move on. Fair point. I have to admit, after half an hour of listening to this litany of victimhood, I thought, Now's the time to move on, but I clearly misjudged. And did you openly acknowledge what she was feeling and the strength of it? Yeah. That said, I was probably a little bit too pragmatic, saying, well, you know, you can only control what you can control. This seems to be a solution, a way to control something. You can't control what the teachers say or do, and what's happened has happened. So she has to accept that. Which is, you know, she she sort of has intellectually, but not at an emotional level. She's stressed about it because, you know, this affects her future. So again, these are all classic examples and symptoms of entering into the drama triangle. As you sort of go above the line into this drama triangle, you're worried about the future. You're stressed about the past. It's full of judgment and blame and then a bunch of excuses. So you go from victim to persecutor to, and in my case, I listened to her being victim and went from rescuer to, I think, to persecutor, in her mind, at least, although I wasn't trying to be. I think the first step is to, is always to empathise, to recognise the feeling and openly acknowledge the feeling and its validity. I think the challenge of leaping in too early towards solutions, regardless of how you do it, is that it can come across as, so, all right, you say you understand I'm angry, scared, whatever it might be, but you don't think I should be because there's nothing I can do about it, or this bit or that bit anyway. And, yeah, she's feeling what she's feeling. She has no more control over that because I don't know anybody yet that has minute-to-minute control of their endocrine system. Stimulus response. How she deals with all that stuff going on inside her, she has control over, though she probably doesn't entirely realise that. So, I mean, because everything you said is an accurate reflection of of the real world. but. Emotion trumps reasoning every time. That's why marketing campaigns are more successful than political campaigns. There's always somebody in the politics who's going to run out a load of statistics to try and persuade you of one thing or another. It doesn't land. It's just numbers. That's why I think Biden will lose rather than Trump will win uh, in this election. I think well, Biden that's give it away. <laughs> I think that's another conversation. (laughs) It's fascinating because whichever way your political persuasion lies, the whole understanding of power of emotion in human communication is massively underrated by people who think that they have a strong argument, like I did with my daughter. And I I think we forget that logic is inevitably trumped by emotion. And to paraphrase Mark, uh, Mark Twain, when you realise the whole world is mad, everything makes sense. To my mind, I think we are a largely messed up species because we, you know, we've inherited a load of beliefs and prejudices. We have a perception of ourselves that is 
largely a fiction in terms of uh, you know the reality of how others perceive us, and more often than not, that narrative that we run in our head is one that is quite negative and critical in the majority of cases. And I'm curious, in, in terms of listening to the, that inner voice and hearing what it's trying to tell you and mm-hmm. understanding its intent, can we spend a little bit of time on that? Yeah, I think the, to one of my favourite sayings is from Tara Brack, who, who says, your thoughts are all real. They're not necessarily true. <laughs> they're certainly not who you are and you're under no obligation to act out on them. And again, there's a significant proportion of the population who nobody's ever told them that. They have stuff in their head that turns into, into action. And we can all do it when we're, when we're stressed. But I think, again, I practice a lot of mindfulness. I, I preach a lot of mindfulness. And I think when you... It's like paying attention to your your feelings. If you pay attention to your thoughts, sort of watch them passing through your head, if you if if you will. And yeah, they come and go, and some of them, quite a lot of them, start seeming ridiculous after a while. But even as a, a simple act of you know, where does that come from? Why you know, how do I feel when I think of that? And what do I think about when I feel that? are two interesting questions and, and, and get familiar with what's going on in your own head. You know, the 24-7 world doesn't leave a lot of time unless you stop and take it. And people say, oh, yeah, I, I don't have time to do this, that, and the other because of maybe that's changed for a lot of people having had the lockdown experience. Maybe they've discovered more time. But actually, it doesn't take much time, a few, few minutes a day to just sit and be with your thoughts and ex- explore them a bit. And again, it, it quietens, they do get quieter over time for you know, most people. And then when you're more at ease with them, they impact less and it puts you back into that space where the rational works and you move on, coming back to your conversation with your daughter, if you let her choose when you move on, now there's a delicate balance here because she may, you know, once you get into victim mode, you're in the past, the past can't change, so you just go around in a loop. So there's, there's a point at which you need to give a nudge. But I, you know, I would say, you know, allow people to tell their own story in their own words and in their own time. And, you know, part of your job as a listener is to give them the time they need to do that. And yeah, my experience as a mediator in particular is, you know, when you give people a good listening to, strangely, you find that they become much more opening to listening to you and they seem to know how to do it. How I mean, often when, particularly in that mediation scenario, it was like clients were hearing their own story for the first time because it's the first time it wasn't being edited by somebody else. When I was lawyering, I thought I was a pretty good listener. But when you're doing that work, litigation has a process, it has evidence, it has this, it has that. So when the client starts talking about it, you, you keep saying things like, can I bring you back to the point? Well, hey, I'm the client, it's my point, not yours. But I'm paying you a lot an hour and I don't want to be here any longer than necessary. So, yeah, I'll talk about what you want to talk about. Move that into a mediation setting or a facilitation setting or a good conversation setting. And you may lose interest in the conversation, in which case, you know, you have other choices to make. But if you really want to listen, you know, it's let people say what they want to say. When they've done that and they feel heard and they feel felt, you'll get as good at hearing, even though they've had no training, because we all know how to do it. It's programmed in. We've just sort of learned to forget about it. Let's move on to the scenario now of being a manager and with lockdown, because I, I think the pastoral side of management 
is immensely important in this kind of scenario where we're in lockdown. There's a lot of uncertainty. Many people will feel isolated if they're living alone or they're you know living with people who they would rather not be living with. It can probably be or will be very debilitating. What advice would you give to managers in terms of their ability to help other people feel heard? Start by asking them how they're feeling, how they're getting on, and then make the time and the space to listen to the answer. Reflect back what you hear. It's and for a lot of people, you know, when we're when we're stressed, it's quite hard for us to open up because it makes us feel vulnerable. I think being vulnerable is a good thing. I actually think it's a sign of immense strength, not weakness, to share your deepest thoughts and feelings with another human being. But there's an interesting thing. I I'm you're my manager, you're inviting me to share my deepest thoughts and feelings, which may not be entirely flattering to you, and you have control over my future. Maybe I'm worrying that at least some of us in this business are going to lose our jobs, maybe all of us. But if it's only some of us, you may have a say in that. So, yeah, you've got to go some way to, to show that you care what this other human being is going through. But on that note, you um, may want to pay heed to the advice of my pal, Bill Bartlett, um, who wrote a fabulous book called The Coach's Playbook. And in there, he introduces a concept in coaching of the three Ps, permission, protection, and potency. So Mm -hmm. permission is that you can say, whatever needs to be said. Protection is it will not go beyond these uh, four walls or these two uh, cameras and that you will not be punished for telling your truth. And potency is that we have equal stature in this conversation and that we're both allowed to say our piece. And the objective is to help you achieve what you need to achieve in order to meet your potential, to grow, to develop, or to overcome some difficulties. And that is really, really hard. And what I've learned is it requires a great deal of preparation Mm -hmm. uh, on behalf of the coach or the manager, because you need to make sure that you are staying in an adult and nurturing parent mindset or ego state. Because the minute you get into the critical parent or you move into the rescuer, which is helping without boundaries or permission, which is mollycoddling or permissive and tolerates things that it shouldn't, it doesn't confront constructively, then you end up probably worse off. And you've also breached that trust Because the contract that you establish of the three Ps of permission, potency, and protection then feels like it's been broken. And there's really no going back from there. Um, So uh, in terms then of a sales environment, particularly now where customers really aren't going to be making decisions that are non-essential in many cases, and the typical or frequent disappointing behavior of many managers is to push salespeople. I mean, I've had probably six conversations in the last 24 hours with people who are being put upon by their management to pressure customers to make purchase decisions before they're ready to get them in before the end of the quarter. And the net result of that is, in a couple of cases, they were put on personal improvement plans because they refused to do so and they stood their ground, and others have burnt bridges with clients that they've been working on for months and months. Now, what would you say to those managers and those leaders where it's clear that for selfish reasons and for personal reasons, they are trying to get salespeople to pressure customers and prospects 
into making decisions prematurely and for the company's reasons rather than for the customer's reasons. What advice would you give them in terms of the likely reaction that's going on in the minds and guts and hearts of those prospects and their salespeople? I think I'd ask them how it's going for them so far and hear about how many people have they've had to put on personal improvement plans because they stand their ground. Explore with them how they feel about that, why they think that might have happened, and hear about the number of bridges that have been burned. It's the usual thing. You have to try and nudge them to the place where they will find the answer themselves. Because if do the classic industry thing in throw millions of pounds at bringing a consultant in to make a statement of the bleeding obvious. <laughs> and yeah, couldn't you see that coming? That was entirely foreseeable. Yes, of course it is, but they're under stress as well. In my world, they're all doing the best they can. They don't have the resources they need because they've been suffering. I mean, I mean, I think that the lockdown thing is really interesting. I don't agree we've all been in it together, or we may all have been in it together, but some of us are in first class and some of us are in steerage, and that makes a difference. But we have all experienced unusual stresses, be it a fear of the disease, a fear of lockdown, a fear of, will I have a job, will I have a business? You mentioned earlier there are people who have been locked in a house with people who are toxic to them, that has consequences. There's all sorts of things going on. Everybody's had its unprecedented times, as we keep being told. But there is that commonality of experience which should provide the, I know this has been really difficult, but how are you doing? Start the conversation, which is a good way. In. And then doesn't that lead then to, okay, so we know it's really difficult. We know it's hard for all of us to cope with this. How can we together move forward to where we want to be, accepting that all our customers are in this position too? And you know, look around us and see what happens when we don't do that. It's the invitation to explore. I mean, once we get past emotion, you need to start getting into options at some point. But again, yeah. Well, it's the difference between the, the coaching and the and the teaching, isn't it? The coach wants the his client to elucidate the options themselves and you know you help them evaluate and then you help them make a choice, but it has to be their has to be their choice at the end of the day. And and I think that applies in any managerial situation. I mean, is your role to bully people into achieving random targets set by somebody else or is it to get the best out of them we all know that in good times or at the beginning of the year it's presented as one thing and at the end of the year you know it's presented I mean, we've all I, i've been through that here in, in evaluations in in law firms at the beginning of the year all the soft stuff is really important the end of the year the only thing that matters is how much money you put in the bank and you know you do what you do and you take the consequences I think it has to be that sort of conversation at, at, at every level. Interesting. Let's move on to this, uh, the subject of the power of silence. <laughs> Which one of us is going to break first? Well, <laughs> there's the power of silence. <laughs> All right, it's, it is, I've always been taught, you know, to, when I stopped lawyering, to ask open questions. Lawyers don't like asking questions they don't know the answer to. But when you get out of that world, you know, open questions are the thing that produce really valuable answers. And the, the best ones aren't expressed as questions because they're probably things like, tell me more about that, or just repeating the last word that you know, somebody said to you and let them pick up on it. But often silence is... Silence is the most open question you can ask for me. And it, it shows your, if it's accompanied by the appropriate body language, 
it shows that you're paying attention, you're giving the other person the space to say what they need to say, you're interested, you're not going to cut them off. I mean, obviously, if you're constantly looking over their window, over their shoulder to see who's going past or looking for something more interesting happening, you know, you can send a mixed message. But actually being engaged with somebody and, you know, just sitting there quietly, very few silences will last more than six or seven seconds. Well, this is really interesting. I mean, um, I I think silence with a raised eyebrow is probably the best open question there is. (laughs) And it's fascinating because I, I think when people in sales certainly are taught that you should listen, I think most people interpret that is listen for a space to fill the gap. Miller Hyman did a research study about 15 years ago, and it's been reconfirmed by Gong's research on over 10 million telephone conversations that they've recorded and analyzed that the average length of time a salesperson can resist filling the silence before they have to fill it with the sound of their own voice is somewhere between 0.6 and 0.7 of a second. And my experience is that most salespeople are waiting for the silence so that they can ask their next question, which they're typically formulating whilst the other person is speaking. And so one of the most useful skills that I'm able to teach my clients is simply listen to the end and then pause and reflect on what's been said. And often the other person will continue to speak because the silence will encourage them to do so. But if they don't, that three or four seconds gives you time to formulate a really good question. What are your thoughts? I think that's a, a, a good strategy. I think, I think most times they will continue speaking if, if the silence is there. But I, I think silence, engaged silence, rarely comes across badly. The fact that you take time with your question sends a message that you're actually processing what you've heard. People pick up on that. Mostly people don't think, gosh, he thinks really slowly. They're just comforted and therefore calmed by the fact that what they've said has caused a pause for thought. I would probably say more than the three or four seconds. I think back to days of things we're not allowed to do anymore, like smoking. I mean, I, I, I was a pipe smoker at a while, and fiddling with your pipe in the middle of a conversation was a, a generations-old tactic for, for lawyers before me because it, it gives you time to think. It gives you space to think. And also you're not multitasking because you're not trying to pick out the words and think words at the same time. So, so I, I absolutely agree with you. I think mean, it's always let people finish and then weigh it and and actually even I might even go a step further and say, and why not ask them if there's if there's a particular topic there that seems important to them and say, is there anything more about that? And give them another opportunity to to speak. And you can do your piece at the end, because if you really do the listening, they're going to be super receptive to it. That then raises the next question, which is how important is it to summarize what you've heard? I think it's very important to do and not necessarily to do mechanically. I I think there's two things that you need to do. One thing is to reflect back what you've heard as the conversation goes on. And that can be as simple as just picking out a couple of keywords in a sentence and saying those and not bothering with any grammar around it. Lots of, I mean, there was a time, I think, certainly I tended to be taught to paraphrase what had been said as a means of indicating that I had understood it. And now I think the... the advised approach is to what's the expression paraphrase rather than paraphrase and repeat back the exact words because saying back different words doesn't send a message that you heard what was said because it sounds like you heard these other words 
And so that doesn't land quite right. And also the words you're using, you're doing nothing to check what they mean to the other person. And, you know, the words mean what I want them to mean and all that. So there's a a cause of confusion there. So I, I think the reflecting back what's been said in the words that have been said sends a message I am. I'm proving to you that I've heard what you've just said. And periodically, it is worth coming in and summarising both the feelings and the rest of the content. A is a way of reminding, and B is quite a good technique for stopping just a, a, a recycling over the same old ground again. You're saying, look, this is where we are. Let's move it forward from this point. But it does it in a respectful um, way that shows that you have been paying attention, that their their words are are landing or not. It may show they're not, in which case they'll put you right. But if you do it in that way, they put you right in a sort of, "Mm," I don't think you've quite got it, rather than if you pay no attention to it, they tend to get angry about it because they don't feel hurt. Okay. So to take that to the next level, how does one engage in constructive conflict by using listening as the platform to engage in a confrontation of either behavior or what's being said without ending up in negative conflict? What do you mean by negative conflict? I mean, a fight that just ends up where I said, she said, I said, she said, and World War Three breaks out. Because I, I find that in the work that I do, a lot of it requires me to challenge what's being told to me, um, people's behavior, because you know people don't bring me in for hugs and cuddles. Uh, mm-hmm. They bring me in to help them facilitate change, um, yeah. that change to stick. And where they are in their own way, I need to be able to confront that in a way that doesn't cause offence, but does raise their awareness level and open them up to be willing to change. In a business context, I find that much easier than a domestic context, I think, because of the lack of attachment. But I'm just curious in terms of how you as a mediator, for example, when you're seeing someone's behaviour or attitudes or beliefs getting in the way of uh, reaching an accommodation that both the parties that you're mediating with can be happy and comfortable with. How do you confront those uh, issues in a way that doesn't make you now the target? By listening. It's interesting because most of the work I did was in, as I said, in, in families, mostly entrepreneurial families. So these are Typically, people who complicate the family relationship by also being each other's line managers and proprietors and so on. Um, And the the sort of classic model of mediation I was taught was, you know, to have everybody in the room at the same time for as much time as possible. And for all sorts of reasons, I found that didn't work, partly because families are too big, people are not used to meeting and so on. And I evolved a methodology of spending time with each of the parties separately and allowing them each to tell their own story in their own words and in their own time and, and giving, giving that listening to before I decided what the process was going to be from that point on. And the end point would always be to bring everybody in the room together to say what they needed to say at least one case that this family had never been in hadn't been in the room together for nine years because it always involved with furniture flying through the air when they did right and i found that incredibly powerful because it doesn't seem to matter in my experience who gives them a good listening to once they've been listened to a they get on top of their own story and they've done the venting bit because yeah they can scream and shout at me and it it, it it doesn't bother me. And I can exp- yeah, acknowledge the emotion and then say, how, how, how do you think that would play with the other person if you did that in a meeting with them? So you can get a lot of the stuff out of the way first. And by the time they come together, they're 
pretty much ready to have that difficult conversation. And it can be really difficult and it can still end up in shouting and so on. But for my role as a mediator, I'm there to give process. I'm not actually there to be part of the conversation. In my world, when I did my prep properly, the best question I got at the final meeting when they all came together was, why are we paying you all this money just to make the tea? Because <laughs> if it works, you can push <laughs> gently away from the table and let them get on with it. Your role is different than that, I guess. Or is it? Is, is that something that it did come down to letting them get it all out, unload all the emotion, acknowledge the validity of the emotion. It's not to say it's the right way to, to go on if there is such a thing, but it's how they have experienced the world. And yeah, telling somebody their life experience is valid is the quickest way to shut them down. That's people very, very angry and nothing's going to happen. And the sorts of questions I used to ask people once they've done the unloading is really so. So what do you want to happen going forward? Can you do that without any input from the other people? Because if you can, why not just get on and do it? And if you can't, why do you think they might not be willing to do that for you? If you bring that bit in too early, before people have fully unloaded, they're probably not going to be hearing too well. What's really fascinating about what you've just described in the last five or six minutes is you've just described the perfect complex sale where you are selling to a committee. Have conversations with each person individually. You have them tell their story so they feel felt, heard, and understood. You ensure that that you understand to their satisfaction what their experience is and what they want. And then you coordinate everybody to come together you summarize what everyone is uh, looking for and where the difficulties are. Um, and you make sure that everybody is in agreement as to what the intended outcome is. And uh, you're describing how great salespeople sell because great salespeople should be intelligently lazy in my book. Carl von Clausewitz, who wrote a book called On War, which is the, the Bible for uh, Sandhurst and West Point and all the military academies used to hire Prussian officers for the same characteristics, laziness and high intelligence. Minimum effort, minimum loss of life. It's not our job to get between the prospect and their decision to buy. It's our job to help them co-develop the solution and to have their fingerprints all over the outcome that they want and facilitate that. And that requires a lot of effort in the planning It requires a lot of discipline to stay out of the way of them and their decision to buy. And it requires that you listen and ask insightful questions that help them come to the conclusion that they need in order to solve their problem. And once that happens, then you literally only have to ask either so or and or what would you like to do next? And the decision is already made by that point because (laughs) you've helped them craft their own picture, write their own story. And in doing that, you are almost irrelevant. You're just there to make the tea. Yeah. Fascinating parallel. It is, isn't it? Absolutely. Funny that, because at the end of the day, I I think all great selling methodologies are nothing more than communication models. That's all they are. They're simply a way to help people communicate effectively and to enable people to collaborate and come together to reach a conclusion and consensus and then behave in a way that delivers the outcome that they all want. I think that's right. I don't think so many people know that that's right. I mean, I think going back to the mediation world, I've been on endless trainings where people I did a training on intercultural mediation and there were people there who were really smart really successful 
And what they wanted was, oh, so if I'm mediating between an American and a South Korean, this is what I do, rather than what I went for was an awareness of cultural issues, you know, some stuff to put in my tool bag that I could pull out when I thought was appropriate, but it was all about the awareness of, all well, culturally, these people make decisions this way and communicate this way, and these people do it slightly differently. So if you've got a flat structure communicating with a very vertical structure, you know, you can get all sorts of people being upset because the person from the vertical structure thinks he should be talking to somebody at an appropriate altitude in the other one or vice versa. But two-thirds of the people on the course were thinking, I want a grid to be able to look up, but in this circumstance, I do that. This is where I have a real beef with a lot of sales training and uh, sales managers and salespeople, which is they tend to look for the magic bullet in terms of technique. And if you're using technique for technique's sake, then you're using it as a weapon. And actually, the underpinning principles are there in order to ensure that you have clear and effective communication. All sides are heard, and you use the technique as a shield, not a sword. And this is why I believe so many buyers resent the experience that they have with salespeople. And you, you see this a lot with people who've gone through uh, master practitioner training with NLP. They're NLPing them, or they're trying to do a, a negative reverse, or they're, um, they're trying to apply a technique, and it feels negatively manipulative. Mm-hmm. And nobody likes to be manipulated. They don't like to be played. And if you want to create barriers between you and another human being, try and manipulate them and do so in a selfish manner that is self-serving. You have to put the other person first, their interests before yours. If you help enough other people get their needs met, you'll get your needs met as a byproduct. But the minute you make yourself the issue, it's like when I see sales managers going on ride-alongs with their salespeople and they puff up their chest and say, just watch how I do it, Sonny. You know, and they do the big I am. That's just ego getting in the way and ego thrives on drama. And we see this in everyday life, in families, in businesses, in uh, organizations, at you know, friendship circles. Leave your ego in the car, along with your mother and your father and all those critical personality types. You know, just crack the windows so they don't suffocate. Tell them that you love them. And you know, when, you've got, when the sale comes in, you'll buy them a gift. So often, I think people make themselves too much of the issue. And then they get in the way of clear, honest, frank communication. And that then results in disaster. Great. Uh, Ian, we've come to the top of the hour. This has been incredibly helpful. Thank you. What do you struggle with? What are you wrestling with at the moment? What I'm wrestling with at the moment is lockdown, mostly. Partly because... Well, my, uh, I moved here a year ago. My close friends, the people I unload with, for whom my mental health is you know, dependent on, are the closest geographically, a two-hour train ride away in a big city I'm probably not ready to go back to yet. In my case, more because I'm, I hate wearing masks and stuff rather than I'm scared of a disease. But, you know, we're all different on that. Zoom and other platforms have been you know, really helpful in having some sort of contact. I get through two or three calls a week with good friends, but it, it isn't the same. And sitting here with a glass of wine and your mate sitting the other side with a glass of wine is nicer than not, but it's not the same as sharing a bottle. You know? So that's hard. And yeah, I've, I've had anxiety around it. I've had some loneliness around it and yeah work hat on you know lots of there is far more stress in the world than there used to be and it all whether it's big or little it all eats into our bandwidth 
So every conversation is, you know, just that little bit twitchier than it was in pre-COVID times. And I'm trying to accommodate to that and trying to help other people accommodate to that is fascinating, but it but it's a challenge. I'd be really interested if there was research on the importance of the tactile side of uh, human relationships and proximity, you know, breathing the same air, being in the same location. Have you got any advice in terms of where one could look for that kind of information? There is certainly quite a lot of research in the neuroscience literature that our respective brain mapping, I mean, we, we, we do a lot of reading of each other reading around the micro muscles it's, i mean it's controversial whether we do it by mirroring exactly what happens or, or or quite what the mechanism is but there is a lot goes on around here that i mean if you look at kids playing they're constantly looking at each other's faces to see that this is still rough and tumble and not now a fight mm-hmm. uh, and, um, and that again comes back if it if they get the wrong signals then they're going to fight flight and it it, it all kicks off and I think we as parents, you know, look at some of this rough and tumble and we forget we used to do that. And it looks an awful lot like a fight sometimes, but it probably isn't. He hit me back uh, first. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All, all, that, all that sort of stuff. Uh, and so there's, um, there is research out there. I mean, part of it on the screens, there's just the obvious stuff that if I want to look as though I'm engaging with you, on this screen, I have to look into the camera. Yeah. And I, uh, so I'm not looking at your face if I do that. So am I getting all the signals? And if I look at your face, you know, do I look shifty to you because I'm not looking at the camera? I mean, that's sort of basic stuff. But there is also some research that we do, our brains do start mapping on each other when we're in proximity. You can't comfort as much over a screen we learned that we can make the right noises you have to put so much more effort into it if you really do have to put the other person first 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 to get comfort and suck up over a telephone or over a, a video connection like this and the, there is research out there i can probably find someone send you the details if you're if you're interested it, yeah. i mean something neuroscientists are, are, are certainly looking at because I think there's much more the science has taken us to a point where we now know that every human interaction leads to some degree of rewiring of the brain regardless of age that leads to changes in the endocrine system you know whether you're stressed or not affects genetic material and so on and so forth and most of these effects seem to be bigger when we're face-to-face, used to be face-to-face than than, than when we're distant. And I I was reading something from the New York Times this morning saying people are already seeing a decline in social skills just from six months of not doing proper socialisation. And you think all the kids going back to school now, the really positive thing for me is we thought of this as a generation that laid on their beds and pressed buttons on devices and they're all dead keen to get back to school because they want to see their mates that that to me is such a positive (laughs) mine absolutely they're going back today and they absolutely don't want to so (laughs) tell me what are you reading watching listening to at the moment that you really rate at the moment i do past and saying it's something that's been really pivotal I do very little watching and listening, actually. I'm a, I'm, I'm a book reader. Probably the biggest things in my life have been Dan Siegel's Mind Sight. He's the prime developer of a discipline called Interpersonal Neurobiology, which I went to, on to study for three years. Stephen Porges' Polyvagal Theory, which is not an easy read. Um, it's, it's 30 years of scientific research, but that's the thing that says shows that we're primarily social creatures we've evolved into, but this role of fear and the fight-flight system and, and exactly 
what happens when that shuts down. When I first read it, I, I, I came across that Three Seagulls work and I reflect it in my book because it, it seemed to me pivotal and it changed the way I started working with people. And now it's good to see it's come out and it's certainly reached the psychological, behavioural area in mainstream practice now, which is good. And the other thing that's made a big difference to me is a book by Tara Brack called Radical Compassion. She developed a strategy with the acronym RAIN, R-A-I-N, for working with emotion, which is recognise, accept, investigate and nurture. And it's something I use myself on a regular basis. I use it with 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 clients as well. I, th- I think it's a goes back to where we started. First step is recognizing what you're experiencing and and letting it be because you can't. If you're angry, you're angry. It'll pass quite quickly, but probably. But just giving it the space to be there and then investigating it primarily in her case, you know, in the body. Where is it? What does it feel like? What's it doing to you? What's it want of you? Um, and I, I think she does it that way because if you start asking yourself sort of very analytical questions, it, it just gets back into the thinking brain and you start rationalising everything. Whereas if you ask yourself oddball questions, you, you get more insight out of it. And the nurturing bit is really about being kind to yourself. You know, pretty much whatever is happening to you, it's okay because you, you might be able to change what happens in the future by the time you're experiencing something, you can't change it. It's happened. And, you know, take care of yourself. I've downloaded uh, the Siegel and uh, Brack books, uh, but I've also discovered that Dan Siegel has a book called Brainstorm. He does. It's our, the power and purpose of the teenage brain. So given our earlier conversation, I've downloaded that as well. It's a good read. Actually, I've, I've read most of his books. Mindsight is the least scientific of them because it was written for a more popular market. It's a great place to start. But Brainstorm is a really good book if you have less than children. Thank you. So if you had a golden ticket and you could go back and advise the idiot in age 23, what advice would you give him? Single biggest piece of advice, be curious. Be curious about how other people experience the world be curious about why it's different than the way you experience the world, because it is. Be curious about what that means for us all, because that difference is our strength, and it's also the thing that causes us to help each other a lot. I'd agree with that. And um, for those of you listening, have, have keep an eye out uh, for a podcast a roundtable that I'm doing with Martin Lucas, Rob Turley, and Amy Brown on why humans don't understand other humans. So that's going to be an interesting uh, conversation. So, Ian, how can people get hold of you? They can email me, uh, iam.goodtotalk at gmail.com or through the website, www.goodtotalk.online. Probably the easiest ways. Excellent. And Ian's also on LinkedIn. Ian Marsh, thank you so much. I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. Very illuminating. So have I. Thank you, Marcus. Cheers. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you've enjoyed the conversation, then please contact me at marcuskauke at me.com or marcus at laughs, L-A-U-G-H-S hyphen last, L-A-S-T dot com. So marcus at laughslast.com. And if you would like to be a guest, if you think you know someone who would be a good guest for the Inquisitor podcast, then please get in touch and either connect us on LinkedIn or via email. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.